You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you will find your place in Acts chapter 17, we'll read verses 16 through verse 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. When we share the message of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, that message which saves people's souls, we have to strike a delicate balance between two seemingly contradictory things. We have to be sensitive to our audience, and at the same time we have to be insensitive to our audience. We have to be sensitive to our audience in that we have to understand who it is that we are sharing the gospel with or who it is that we are preaching to, uh, where they're at, what type of people they are, and what the occasion is. Because those type of considerations go into the, the shape, the form, and the sound of any message that we deliver. And we ought to be sensitive to at least know who the audience is and, and sort of where they're at spiritually. For instance, the message that I would share at a funeral would be different in form and sound and attitude and demeanor than the message that I would preach at a wedding or at an Awana evangelistic event. The content is the same. The, the essence of the message is the same. But knowing who my audience is and what the occasion is sort of determines the illustrations that I would use, the demeanor that I would, I would have, the attitude with which I might present it, some of the wording that I would choose. I would ask myself, are they believers? Are they mostly unbelievers? Are they old? Are they young? Is this a happy occasion? Is it a sad occasion? Who are my audience? You've got to be sensitive to that. I had a, uh, I got a phone call from the local funeral home. This was a while back, a year or so ago. And uh, I picked it up and said hello. And the minute he says, hi, Jim, I know the voice. This is Tim Coffell. And I know what this is about. Somebody has died, and I'm supposed to do the funeral. Or want, they want me to do the funeral. And he said, um, we have a family that would like a short graveside service and they don't know any pastors in the area and so they asked us if we could just find a pastor who would be willing to do a short graveside service for them. So I looked at my day timer and I had no excuses scheduled in for the day that the funeral was supposed to be and so I said, sure, I, I would do that. And I said, Is this, do they have a regular service at the chapel before the graveside? No, just a short graveside service. Does the family want me to meet with them? No, they just want you to show up and say a couple of words and pray, and that's it. Is there going to be singing? Is there going to be testimony? No, Jim, just what they want is a short 
graveside service. And they want me to emphasize to you that they want it to be kept short. He said, I get the feeling that they want a short graveside service. He said, yeah, my guess is that if you went more than a couple minutes, you're going to be in trouble. I said, okay. Now, it doesn't take a lot of work or preparation to prepare a one-minute sermon, which is all that the audience was wanting. And they didn't even want a sermon. They wanted me to give some sort of a religious atmosphere to the burying of whoever this was, is what they wanted. So I prepared the message, and I showed up. I drove up to the, the graveside, and as I was pulling up, they had one of the ushers from the, from the funeral home that was there directing traffic and showing people where to park. And I rolled down my window. I said, hey, Doug, nice to meet you, and shook his hand. And he said, you can park up here. And just as I was pulling away, he put his hand on my arm. And he, I stopped, and he said, Jim, did they tell you that you're supposed to keep this short? I'm not exaggerating any of this. I said, I think it might have been mentioned. So I pulled up and I, I parked. I walked up to the graveside. I tried to pick out who I thought some of the family members were. And I expressed my condolences. And there was somebody from our congregation who was at that service. And he walked up and we chatted for a little bit. And he said, Jim, I know this family. And they're going to want you to keep this short. Because if you go more than a minute, they're going to up and walk away from the service. I know how this family is. So in about six sentences, the shortest sermon I've ever delivered in my life, in about six sentences, I just communicated the essence of the gospel. We're at a graveside because of death. Death comes from sin. Sin came in here. Here is God's solution to the sin-death judgment problems. Basically six sentences, less than a minute. They sang a song, read a poem, and that was it. The whole thing lasted less than five minutes. And everybody was thankful. They shook my hand. It was great. Short graveside service. Now, friends, the form, the length, the tone, and the design of that message was done so to be sensitive to my audience. Because I wasn't trying to lead everybody to Christ there. I was trying to get the message into their hands. I wanted it in their minds. I wanted to put a stone in their shoe. Give them something to think about. Give them something that they had never heard before. It's way different than a message that I would deliver here on a Sunday morning. So we have to be sensitive to our audience, but at the same time, we have to be insensitive to our audience because we need to not care whether it offends or not. Right? So even though the form, even though the design, even though the shape of a, of a communication of the gospel, whether it is across the table over coffee or to somebody who's sitting in your home uh, sharing a meal with you, if you're sharing the gospel, you have to be sensitive to the audience to know how to communicate truth to them, but insensitive enough that you really don't care whether it offends them or not. Because if you alter the message, the content of the message, in order to accommodate the audience then you've changed the message and it's no longer the power of God unto salvation. Sensitive and insensitive to the audience. The Apostle Paul struck that perfect balance in Acts chapter 17 when he preached the message to the men on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And we're in Acts chapter 17. You'll remember last week I mentioned this sermon is different than any other sermon Paul preached, at least as far as what is recorded for us. This is different than any other recorded sermon. Different than the sermon to the Jews that we read in Acts 13. This one is delivered to intellects, to philosophers, to school teachers, to university professors, to the intellectual elite of the elite, the who's who of academia. In the city of Athens, before the Athenian high court, the Areopagus. 
A completely different message than he would step into a synagogue and deliver. Because Paul was sensitive to his audience. He knew who he was talking to. But the message, the content, was the same. And Paul really didn't care whether he offended them or not. As long as it was the message that offended them. Now Paul is in Athens alone. Remember that? Timothy, Silas, he left back in Berea. They escorted him to Athens. He is in Athens waiting. I don't think Paul's intention was to get into any kind of ministry or to deliver any kind of messages until his ministry team arrived. But as he wandered about through the city streets, he saw something that stirred in his soul a deep anger, a grief of spirit. And what he saw was the fact that the city was smothered in idols, covered in idols, idolatry everywhere. Every level, horizontal, flat place had an idol sitting on it. They even had idols to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. And this so grieved Paul that he went into the synagogue without waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and he went into the marketplace and reasoned with the anybody who happened to be present. You remember, that's a lot of people. Why? Verse 21, because that's what they live for, to hear or tell something new. They wanted intellectual stimulation. So they hung around the marketplace. Now verse 18 of chapter 17 tells us there, there were two types of people present, Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. Those two things may not mean anything to you right now, but they will before we leave. Luke identifies those two for a few different reasons. First of all, because that's predominantly his audience. If you're going to understand the message that he delivers in, chapter, in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, then you've got to understand who Paul's talking to, or his message is not going to make any sense to you. Because you're going to be saying, why did he preach a message like this? He was gearing it to his audience. So primarily his audience is Epicureans and Stoics. The second reason that we need to understand who those people are, that Luke identifies those two classes of people, is because those are the two predominant philosophies in Athens. There were other schools of thought, other ways of thinking, other worldviews sort of circulating around, but these two were the real contenders. And they were competing philosophies. They were sort of on opposite poles from one another. Now there were a lot that was similar between Epicureans and Stoics, but they were basically two competing schools of thought that tried to explain man and our world and God and how everything works. They were two different worldviews. Now, is there a third? Well, Paul's going to come on the scene with a third one, and they're going to say, hey, that's strange. He is speaking some strange things to us. So look what happens in verse 18. He is down in the marketplace. The marketplace was a, a place where they had colonnades and and porches and little little porticos and things where people would gather and they would discuss philosophy and they would discuss ideas and things. They would, they would bring together people for public debate and they would put the best Epicurean up there and the best Stoic up there and they would let them go at each other like a modern-day Hannity and Combs, some news program. And they get up there and they debate back and forth and everybody would sit around and they would listen to their ideas and they would evaluate their ideas. All the students from the university, the world-famous university that was in Athens, they would gather in the marketplace and there they would practice their oratory and spew off their ideas and pontificate and people would banter back and forth. This marketplace is not so much for the exchange of goods, it really serves for the exchange of ideas. People are coming together and they're hashing out ideas. And everybody in Athens met in the marketplace because there they lived for nothing else but to hear or to say something new. And when a new philosophy, a new way of thinking, a new message came to town, everybody was on board, everybody was there, and they wanted to hear about it. Because this was new. 
So Paul is down in the marketplace, and he runs into Epicureans and Stoics. Now you need to know what an Epicurean is, and you need to know what a Stoic is, because listen, we live among them today. And I would be willing to bet you that tomorrow, if you go to the store, if you go to work, or if you go to school, that you will run into more than one Epicurean and more than one Stoic before lunch. So you better know what they believe. Because if you're going to have some any kind of an intellectual exchange with them, if you are going to confront their worldview, if you're going to deal with their presuppositions and their spiritual problem, then you need to know what your audience is. Epicureans, Epicureanism is a school of thought or philosophy that was founded by Epicurus, who lived in Athens about 300 years before Christ. To the Epicurean, the chief aim of life was this, pleasure. That would be a popular philosophy today, wouldn't it? But not hedonistic pleasure. It was not so much pleasure as in the gratification of the senses, or the stimulation of the flesh or of the mind, but a pleasant life, a life that was lived free of difficulty, free of bodily pain, free of emotional distress, a pleasant life. They weren't sensualists. In fact, Epicureans actually responded negatively towards just strictly sensualism. Let me quote an Epicurean philosopher for you. Here's Epicureanism. He says, By pleasure we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. Did you catch that? The absence of pain in the body and the absence of trouble in the soul. That second part is key. He goes on, It is not an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and of revelry, not sexual love, not the enjoyment of fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table which produces a pleasant life. It's not those things that produces a pleasant life. The Epicurean said, It is sober reasoning, searching out the grounds of every choice and avoidance and banishing those beliefs through which the greatest tumults take possession of the soul. It's not so much the gratification of my flesh, it is not so much the experience of pleasure as to have a pleasant life. A life that is free of bodily pain, emotional distress, anything that vexes my spirit, my mind, or my soul is to be gotten rid of. Just a, I just want to live a life free of trouble, free of annoyance. No cell phones in the restaurants. No people driving while they're talking on the phone. I want to live a life that is free of annoyance. That's the Epicurean. Free of bodily pain, a pleasant life. Just don't upset the equilibrium. Now you might say, well, how could you be an Epicurean if you're not com completely committed to sensualism. An Epicurean was not somebody who passionately sought out the gratification of their fleshly lusts or desires. In fact, there was a whole school of Epicureans who practiced asceticism, which is the denial of their passions, the denial of their flesh. Another Epicurean writer writes this, Intercourse has never done a man any good, and he is lucky if it's not harmed him. Nor will a wise man except in unusual circumstances marry and rear a family. There was a whole school of people who, who disdained any kind of erotic love or any kind of erotic sensuality. So it's not just the gratification of the pleasure. And it's not hedonism because a true sensualist would never pursue a pleasure that brought them pain. Like drinking, for instance. You may be able to drown your pain in drink and enjoy it, and enjoy the pleasure of drinking, but in the morning it brings a hangover. That's pain. 
that's emotional, mental, and physical pain, so they would reject that. A true Epicurean would never have an affair. Why? Because an affair would bring strife and conflict and trouble at home. And it would defeat its purpose. A life free from trouble, free from any belief that vexed the mind, the spirit, or the heart. They were not theists, but they were not opposed to God at the same time. If you wanted to believe in God, that was fine. But for them, God was not necessary. Because they had a way of explaining everything without ever appealing to a supernatural God. Now, here's where you're going to say, ah, yeah, I know who the Epicureans are in my life. The Epicureans had a way, they denied anything supernatural. God was not involved in your life. He did not interfere in your life. He wasn't involved in this world. He was very distant, never got involved, never, nothing supernatural. They, they looked at the world and they saw a world that was full of disease and death and trouble and sickness and pain and sorrow. And they said, this world cannot possibly be the creation of a divine being. So we don't believe that a divine being exists. And we do not believe that a divine being had anything to do with this earth. If God exists, then He might, but we don't need Him because we can explain everything in terms of processes and chemicals and chance. And so they didn't believe in divine creation because for God to create something means you'd have to step in and interfere with things. So they believed that after death there was no afterlife because after death you're simply going to dissolve both body and soul into particles from which you came. You started out as dust and ashes and gases and chemicals and random chance processes, and that's the way you're going to go. At the end of your life, you're simply going to dissolve back into the dust and gases from which you came, and there's no afterlife. And if there's no afterlife, then there's no resurrection. There can't be a resurrection because a resurrection requires a divine supernatural being to affect the resurrection. So there's no afterlife, no resurrection. And if there's no afterlife and no resurrection, then there's no judgment. Look at Paul's message, how he ends it in verse 31 of chapter 17. At the end of his message, Paul says, Because he, that is God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See the message? Two points Paul's emphasizing. Judgment to come, bodily resurrection. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. (laughs) Paul, you're just a superstitious Jew. They sneered at him. They denied resurrection. Denied judgment to come. Why did the Epicurean deny judgment to come? Well, if there is a God, and He exists, and He has interfered in the affairs of men, then it logically follows that there is going to be a judgment in the future in which that God will interfere in the affairs of men. Now, the belief in God and the fear of judgment for evil doing tends to evoke a certain negative response, doesn't it? Doesn't that kind of cause you some anxiety or some stress or some vexation over your sin and the unknown? Sure it does. We can't have any of that if we're an Epicurean, right? We have to be free from anything that vexes our soul and our spirit. And they believed that the most disturbing thing you could possibly believe was that there will be a divine reckoning for evil doing. And so they denied all beliefs in an afterlife and explained everything in terms of the here and the now, it's dust and particles. Friends, we have Epicureans among us today, don't we? Who are they? Well, they have a way of explaining everything without ever appealing to God. 
It's all matter. In the beginning was matter. In the end, there is matter. Everything exists as it was from the beginning. All things continue on this long process, upward and upward and upward, and it keeps on going on. And God is not involved in any of it. There's no supernatural creation. In fact, they offer to us a whole philosophy of life that is free from God and free from worry of judgment and free from fear of retribution for evil doing. The modern-day Epicurean is the evolutionist. The evolutionist. The evolutionists have designed a way of thinking about life and about the afterlife in terms that doesn't appear appeal to God. And so you don't have to worry about your sin because after you die, that's it. There's no judgment to come, they say. Let me share with you a little trade secret of evolutionists. They won't say this on the television set. They won't say this on the radio. They won't say this in the public school system, and they won't say it openly and publicly, but if you get behind the doors at their little conferences or you read their peer-reviewed journal articles, there is a little trade secret amongst evolutionists that they don't want us to know about, and it's this. There's absolutely no evidence for evolution whatsoever, and they accept it as an article of faith. They will admit this privately amongst themselves, sometimes publicly. Harold Urey, a Nobel laureate, said all of us who study the origin of life find that the more we look into it, the more we feel that it is too complex to have evolved anywhere. We all believe as an article of faith that life evolved from dead matter on this planet. End quote. Did you hear that? That's a candid admission, isn't it? Listen to this. Dr. George Wald, a professor of physics at Harvard, said, quote, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. You know what spontaneous generation is? That life can come from non-life. That life just appears out of dead material. There are only two possibilities, he said, either creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago, but that leads us to only one other conclusion, supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. Another candid admission. British scientist Sir Arthur Keith said, Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it because it's the only alternative to special creation, and that is unthinkable. If we admit there's a God, they're saying very candidly, if we admit to special creation, then we know there's a God. And they won't accept a God. Why? Judgment. Then they have to reckon with Him. And they will deny that He exists, even if it means believing by faith the impossible something they know cannot happen. They would rather believe that than to admit that there is a God who exists, who created everything, and who holds us accountable for our decisions and our choices and our lifestyles. And so they deny that. Why? Because they want to live a life that is pleasant. They want to do what they want to do without fear of retribution. That's the Epicureans. Then there's the Stoics. What is a Stoic? A Stoic is somebody who said, well, we're really not after pleasure and we're really not after pain. What we're after is being indifferent to both pleasure and pain to come to that place in your life where you reach the settled conclusion that you are going to submit to the law of fate and destiny. To simply accept without any kind of emotion or interaction with whatever might come your way. They believe that God was in everything and everything was God. 
this corporeal fire that was within everything and that everything was turning to fire over this long life cycle and it would all turn to fire and then it would all come back around again and we would repeat the whole cycle all over again and that everything was fated, everything was destined, you and I could do nothing about it, our choices really did not mean anything in the end and that we must submit to that law of fate, that force that governs all things that is in all things, and that force is neither good and it is neither evil. We really don't know it's in all things and it continues on. The highest aim of your life is to fulfill your destiny. Now there are Stoics that live among us too, isn't there? From the words that I've just used to describe it, you know who they are. The closest thing to a modern day Stoic is what would be a Star Wars type religion. Fulfill your destiny. There is a force that governs everything and drives everything on to its end on this long life cycle. George Lucas is a modern day Stoic. And he's an Epicurean. See friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Philosophies never die. They just get reincarnated with different skin. And they come up all over again. We live among Epicureans and Stoics. We do not live amongst people who have already a biblical mindset who understand biblical terms like creation and sin and the fall and redemption and justification and judgment to come. We live amongst Epicureans and Stoics. So you can picture the Apostle Paul in the marketplace. And he is having a discussion with a bunch of anti-supernatural, naturalistic, materialistic, liberal, critical, skeptical scholars mingled with a bunch of pantheistic, new age, be part of the God force within everybody scholars. That's his audience. Does that sound to you like a receptive audience? That's hostile. Look what they call him. Verse 18. They were conversing with him and some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Idle babbler is kind of an interesting word. It's a combination of two Greek words and literally translated it would be seed picker. What does this seed picker wish to say? Spermolicus from sperma meaning seed, and lego meaning to speak. They say, why did they call him a seed picker? And just in case you haven't picked it up from the context, that's not a compliment. It's a disdainful thing. It's an insult to call somebody a seed picker. What does this seed picker wish to say? A seed picker, the word was used to describe a scavenger bird. Like when I plant my seeds in the spring and all the crows come in and pull the seeds out of the ground, and I go out there and there's all these little holes down my rows where my corn once was. They're scavenger birds. And they would go out into the field and they would pick indiscriminately at any seed that was left behind. That was a seed picker. The word then came to be used of human seed pickers or vagrants. People who would loiter about and eat the food that was left over in the, in the gutters. And they would, they were dumpster divers who would go in and they would eat whatever food they could find in the dumpsters. Those were seed pickers. As one modern day author described it, the type of person who walks around and finds cigarette butts and smokes them. That's the image behind it. The word then came to be used of teachers who never had an original thought of their own, but they would henpeck different teachings and different ideas from all of these different sources and they would bring them all together into a rag bag of thinking, a bunch of unrelated, incoherent thoughts. Sort of a second-rate, second-hand teacher who picked up secondary pieces of knowledge and then he would try and pass them off as something profound in the marketplace and sound real erudite and sophisticated and knowledgeable. And if you were familiar with him and familiar with what he had heard, 
you'd be able to identify, oh, he's just a seed picker. He's just a guy who runs around and he hears somebody say this and he hears somebody say that and he takes a little bit from everybody and puts it all together. The word was used to describe somebody who could not come up with a logical, coherent, rational line of argument because what they believed was not rational, logical, or coherent. Mentally confused. Some synonyms would be things like an intellectual parrot, an intellectual plagiarist. He's just a seed picker. They disdained the messenger. And they said he's just a second-rate teacher taking second-hand pieces of knowledge and trying to pass them off as his own. They also seem to be confused with the message because you look at verse 19 and look what Luke says. Sorry, the end of verse 18. Others were saying to him, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Notice the plural, deities. Who is he proclaiming? Jesus Christ. But Luke tells us where the confusion came in because he was preaching Jesus and the anastasis. That's the word that Luke uses for resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the anastasis. Jesus and the resurrection. And so they confused in their mind that, oh, Paul's presenting to us two new deities. We have a Jesus and we have a resurrection. Two new gods. So this to them was strange. Well, this confusion led them to give to Paul one of the greatest opportunities he ever had in all of his life. They took him and they brought him before the Areopagus. This was the Supreme Court of Athens. In ancient times, they had jurisdiction over murder cases and theft cases and basically sort of ruled that area, the the Supreme Court. And they met on the Hill of Ares or the Areopagus or Mars Hill. The Latin name for him was Mars. He was the god of war. And they named their high court after Ares and they called themselves the Areopagus. And interestingly enough, today the Supreme Court in Greece is still called the Areopagus. In Paul's day, they didn't have jurisdiction over criminal matters. They had jurisdiction over philosophy matters and ethical matters and teachings and things that were going on in the culture. He's not arrested here and he's not being tried. What they have done is they have brought him before the court and they're saying to him, we want to hear what you're saying. Now listen to this. The fact that the Apostle Paul got a hearing before the Areopagus tells me something significant. The Apostle Paul was holding his own in the marketplace against the Epicureans and the Stoics. Because not every seed picker got to stand before the high court in Athens. Paul was an intellectual, philosophical, teaching force to be reckoned with. I have to assume from the fact that he stood before the Areopagus that the Apostle Paul was not only holding his own, but that he was gaining people's attention and they were having a hard time refuting his ideas. They were having a hard time dealing with his teachings. And that he was able to confound them in the marketplace, and they finally said, this is too odd for us, too weird for us. We want you to stand before the who's who of the intellectual world. Present your case to us at the Areopagus. Paul's no intellectual slouch. I think the man was brilliant. Not every seed picker got to stand before the Areopagus. This was the elite of the elite. I think he was starting to have some sort of a following in the marketplace where people were at least willing to sit down and give ear to what he was saying. And the Epicureans and the Stoics said, we can't deal with him. We're going to take him to the high court. So they brought him into the Areopagus and they said, you're teaching to us odd and weird things. Explain what they mean. What was he saying that was so weird? Well, if the Apostle Paul was talking about one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he was promoting this one God, a monotheistic, a Jewish monotheism, To all of these polytheists, that would sound a little weird to them, wouldn't it? 
If he was presenting God as creator of all things, sustainer of all things, who created everything at a time in the past, at a moment in the past, and he is still involved in the world today, the Epicureans and the Stoics would both say, that's strange. If he was preaching the resurrection and judgment to come, then to the Epicureans and the Stoics they would say, that's strange. We want to hear what you have to say about this. Now, I want you to understand that as Paul stands before these people, it is a hostile crowd. They are not sympathetic to them, him. They have not brought Paul there because he has gained their admiration. They have brought Paul there because he has seized their attention. And they want to deal with him. They have expressed contempt for him as the messenger, calling him a seed picker. And they have expressed a contempt for his message in saying he's proclaiming strange deities, weird gods like Jesus and Anastasis, thinking maybe Anastasis was Jesus' female cohort and that Paul was promoting these two gods. Showed contempt for the messenger, showed contempt for the message. And friends, I think that when Paul stood before there, they were thinking in their minds, we're going to destroy this guy. We're going to destroy him. We are going to intellectually make hamburger out of this guy in the public forum for everybody to see. And they have brought him there thinking to themselves, he's only a seed picker. And once we put him before the highest and the best and the brightest in the city of Athens, before all of the professors and all of the lecturers and all of the top philosophers, we get him in front of the council of the top dogs in Athens and they're going to shred him. Because look, we're used to this. We debate these things in the marketplace day after day after day, and the only thing we live for is to tell or to hear something new. Let's bring this seed picker in in front of us, and we're going to make mincemeat out of him in front of everybody. I think they've wrongly assessed Paul. (laughs) In the words of one of my favorite U.S. presidents, they have misunderestimated him. They've misunderestimated him. Their assessment of Paul is all wrong. He's a seed picker. Now, there's just something I want you to notice about the setting that Paul is at before we leave here. Paul is in Athens, which is the center of intellectual light, and it is also the heart of spiritual darkness. You notice that? It is the center of intellectual light, and it is the heart of spiritual darkness. They had idolatry in that city and spiritual darkness like no other city. But this was the elite of the elite of the elite intellectuals and philosophers and teachers that the world had to offer. Everybody from all over the world came to Athens to study, to debate, and to lecture, and to promote their ideas. And it is the heart of spiritual darkness. I think that's what Paul Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, the world and its wisdom did not come to know God. I think he has in mind Athens. He just left Athens before he went to Corinth. The world and all of its intellectualism and all of its wisdom and all of its learning did not come to know God. And the farther that man travels down his intellectual path with all of his learning and all of his philosophy and all of his worldviews and all of this scientific technology that we have, the farther away from God we get. Isn't that ironic? The more intellectual we get, the more darkened spiritually we get. Why does that happen? Romans chapter 1. Because man has seen the invisible things about God and the creation that is around us, 
And instead of honoring Him as God and recognizing Him as Creator and Sustainer of all things, we have man has turned his back on God and refuses to give God glory. Refuses to give God thanks. And he takes the knowledge that is evident about God in the creation and he says, if I acknowledge that, it means I believe in supernatural creation. And on philosophical grounds, I cannot accept that. So they take the truth about God and they suppress it in unrighteousness. And they keep it down. We do not want to admit the obvious. We do not want to acknowledge the only true and right conclusion. Because if we acknowledge the truth, then we've got to deal with the one who gave the truth. And so Paul says, professing to become wise, they what? They became fools. That's Athens. Professing to become wise, they become fools. And they exchange the glory of the only God, the one true God, for the glory of an image made like a beast, like a man, like a four-footed crawling thing. The world in its wisdom did not and cannot come to know God. The only way that God can be known in a saving and true and relational sense is by revelation that we have in this book. All of the wisdom, all of the philosophy of the world brings man into spiritual darkness. This is the only source for knowledge. This they did not have. And they tried to figure out life and they ended up in darkness. But friends, God has taken the weak things of the world. He has taken the foolish things of the world. He has taken the things that are not in order that He might use them and bring to nothing the things that are. Because God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And what Paul does next week is we're going we're gonna to look at this next week. What Paul does is he takes the Word, which is the weapon of our warfare, and he uses it to destroy their arguments. You and I live among Epicureans, we live among Stoics, we live among philosophers, evolutionists, and New Agers. So what do we do? We're scared of them and what they think? Are we scared of them and their philosophy? What are we scared of? Human wisdom? Couldn't know God. Couldn't know divine truth. So what do we do? Well, we have the weapon of our warfare. It's sitting in your hands. It's sitting in your laps. And friends, Paul tells us that this is not fleshly, it's not earthly, it is mighty in God for what? The pulling down of strongholds and every exalted argument and philosophy of man that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And by the Word of God we bring captive every thought, every ism, every way of thinking, every worldview, every philosophy to the obedience of Christ. And that's what Paul does in Acts chapter 17 in the message. And you're going to see just how brilliant he is next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that it is the weapon of our warfare to deal with the Epicureans and the Stoics, the evolutionists and the New Agers that we live amongst. And Father, these philosophies which existed 2,300 years ago, they existed before that and they exist today. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to stand against those things, to understand where our audience is coming from, where our culture is at, in order that we may with wisdom present the gospel and the truth of Christ and his resurrection, just as Paul did in Athens 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you the truth never changes. It never has to be changed because it is always true. And we love it and we desire to obey it and to communicate it to everybody that we run into everybody that we cross in our paths. We pray that you give us the grace and the boldness to do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.